to Phenomenosophy Season 2, Episode 2. I'm Brandon, and with me is Gingy. How are you doing today, Mr. Gingy? Doing pretty good, Mr. Brandon. How are you? I am very well. So, what do you have for us today? What will the topic of discussion be? Well, this is a bit of a continuation from the last call, where we went over Uncle Tom number one, the uh, first movie in a series of movies that these guys are releasing. It's, uh, you know, I recommend everybody, if they haven't listened to the first one, to go back and listen to it because we will be touching on a lot of the same points and a lot of the same topics and concepts. Uh, we might even be expanding on some of the things that we spoke into around uh, worldview and ideology and stuff like that. So before we really get into it, I kind of wanted to give a quick little summary of what we're going to get into, like a quick overview of of what the film entails um and just so kind of people kind of get an idea of what what we're going to about to go through here the entire film uh takes like a deep historical look through african-american history from basically slavery on up to the present day and they analyze a lot of the successes that African-Americans have experienced and a lot of the downfalls. And what's really cool is they go into how these successes and failures happened. Like what was really at the heart of African-American people succeeding in the ways that they did and creating immense um, progression and education and wealth and community. And then what happened to have a lot of that fall apart and, and sort of degenerate and how we basically got from there to here, where we are now. That's my little uh, my little spiel. Let's do the thing. Uh, so in the movie, uh, at the beginning, they start by kind of looking at the current narrative, which they refer to as, quote-unquote, the lie. Uh, they showed several videos of the lie, uh, kind of example videos, if you will, one was a little girl marching, one of those iconic scenes where everybody you know, shared it around. It was a viral video of this probably eight-year-old girl marching in a protest in 2020 with a mask on, pulled down to her chin, and just screaming passionately, no justice, no peace. They kind of planted the seed for the concept of the entire film from there saying that this is the lie. They showed several videos of like media outlets and protests and social media content and things like that of uh, different aspects of it. A lot of people are saying that the unrest that you see in African-American communities and individuals today is, is quote-unquote generational trauma from their ancestors enduring slavery and has somehow been passed down uh, culturally or or genetically to the people that are alive today and and people use this as an excuse to justify the bitterness and the anger and the rage in their behavior maybe and, and not just justify but also to elicit or incite yeah that too to kind of pull it out of people as well um there was a lady who who spoke up pretty much right at the beginning after they went into the idea of this lie. Uh, her name is Carol Swain. She said, quote, 
It doesn't make much sense because blacks coming out of slavery were respectable, deeply religious, and relatively prosperous. I think you see more dysfunction in the black communities today than than back then because they've lost that anchor. Unquote. And what, and I what think specifically the, what specifically is the anchor? That's what I was just about to get into. I think the anchor that they're talking about is the church and that moral framework that came with the church. Um, also, uh, Judeo-Christian ethics and things like that. Um, there's another guy that jumped on right after that, uh, Jason Lee Peterson, and he said church was the center point of social gatherings, culture, and everything back in those days. And, you know, well, he gave examples. He's like, every Sunday we'd go and eat breakfast with the family, and then we'd go to Sunday school all at the same time. We'd all come out of our houses and walk down the street to Sunday school. Wednesdays, we'd all go to Bible study. In the summers, we'd go to church ch church camp or church retreat camp. And that those were all just expected things. It gave a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of discipline. Churches held the communities together. It held families together. And kids were growing up in two-parent households in peaceful neighborhoods. And when they compared that, this guy, Jason Lee Peterson, when he compared that later to today, he's like, the, the black communities, they lack character. That's the thing that's changed. It's not because of racism or oppression or systems or any of the things that people are blaming today. They believe black neighborhoods crumble because of a lack of family and, and most blacks not believing in God. So I think that's the centerpiece that she was talking about. Have any thoughts? Well, I'm curious if, and I don't know if this is a, the right point to bring this up, but I'm curious if they discuss any ideas around what specifically undermined that anchor, the anchor of Judeo-Christian principles, the church. Right. Uh, they do get into that down the line. In fact, they go into quite a bit of depth as to what undermined the Judeo-Christian values, what undermined the church and um, how people were educated and what they knew and believed. Basically, what turned the tide from progression to degression from um, slavery up until the first half of the 1900s to, you know, everything that we've seen since the civil rights movement. All right. If we're going to get into it, I don't think we need to address it now. Yeah, I don't think we need to get into it right now. I think, uh, I mean, it'll it'll kind of it'll come out throughout the throughout the whole thing. I just thought it was an interesting an interesting set of claims to come right out of the bat and say that there's this big lie and that the reason why black communities have been suffering is not anything that that they've been talking about publicly today. It has a lot more to do with the the black community cultures and the family units and their 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 connection with religion and god. Because that's not something that's talked about usually day to day when we're talking about, you know, equality and stuff like that. So anyway, another guy here chumps in, uh, Stephen Broden, and he says, if you walk through any black urban community, you see black men standing on corners doing nothing. Young, middle-aged and old people, they are operating under the definition that is different from what he believes God has defined for men and their role as men. They even showed a bunch of gangsters and gang banging and, you know, a bunch of guys running around shooting guns and stuff like that. And 
this guy Brandon Tatum jumped in and said that this is not black culture. It's this is really more of a facade because historically, throughout history, um, black people were honorable. They had integrity, and now the black people that we see pushed up on pedestals are Cardi B and Jay Z and George Floyd and people like that. And how we deify idols after we burn down local cities and stores and destroy our own neighborhoods. I found that to be pretty, pretty powerful. Um, Cause they did show a bunch of murals painted across several cities of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And they showed some scenes of, you know, Jay-Z, Beyonce, Cardi B, these, these, um, you know, famous celebrities all performing and doing their thing in, in a bunch of rap music videos and stuff. And it was just this personification of de degeneracy, of, of violence, of no morality. And to me, it's always, it, it's always felt like that, that, that it wasn't really black culture that that was portraying. It was really this facade. Like I, I've seen even a lot of people, black guys growing up in all white neighborhoods adopted by white parents and going to Ivy League schools and stuff. And then they walk around talking like they're from Compton. I'm like, where, where the hell did you even get that? <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's just adopted as like, oh, that's what it means to be black. So I need to change who I am and how I, how I behave to match this, this facade. What do you think about that? Right. And not only does it redefine who you are culturally, but it also redefines, I find this interesting, the, the, how masculinity or femininity is expressed. So we have within us, you know, certain, uh, impulses to fulfill a masculine or a feminine role in society. And not only have they redefined culturally what we, what we are as people, but they've redefined culturally how to express masculinity. So like you brought up the example of, of the gangster, right? And in some sense, there are, those are masculine traits, right? They're like, uh, the impulse to, for violence, the impulse to protect and defend. Um, it's just a distorted, twisted version of masculinity. So it's in order to, for this, what you called a facade of culture to take hold, you have to not only destroy the old definitions or expressions of what it is to be masculine or what it is to be feminine, but you have to create new forms of expression for what it means or how it is to act with masculinity or femininity. That's very cool. It goes right into the next part where this guy, Vody Bachman, did he is the man. He's this, uh, I think this pastor from, uh, I'm going to butcher it. I don't remember exactly what he does. I know he works with the church. He's always talking inspirational stuff to people. He's, he's got some very wise words and well, let, let, well, your, your research is impeccable. Well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I follow him on him on Instagram and I listen to some of the stuff that he says, but I'm right now I'm drawing a blank as to where he's from, but I always see him up there like a, a pastor. I just don't know if that's actually true. Uh, but the stuff that he says, nevertheless, is quite powerful and wise. This, 
Um, here, I'll just, I'll just quote this next thing that he said. He said, church imagery communicates messages of who we are, uh, why we're here, what's wrong with the world, and how it can be made right. And so do these politically charged pieces of street art. And what we're seeing right now is the birth of a new religion, um, communicating another mer- uh, meta-narrative and another worldview. And these murals that are, are the, the stained glass pieces of this new religion. And that's a, a crazy powerful idea to me because I've never really considered street art. I mean, murals, yeah, you can see the imagery of, of Christ and, and whatever, you know, is up on churches and stuff. You can see the, the story and the message and the reminders in that art, but I never considered street art. You know, I just thought it was more entertainment and just self-expression as opposed to communicating a meta narrative. But when they went through and started showing a lot of these images, you know, you'd see a city that had been completely burned down and ripped apart. Yet there's one mural that stands there of George Floyd with the tear coming down his face. And it's like, that screams. What do you think about the idea of meta narratives being trans... uh, um, transferred through some of these imagery. Oh, absolutely, and and I think uh, the the two distinctions here of what imagery is portrayed through uh, religion and what imagery is portrayed through a quote unquote new religion, and I find the the elements there of who we are, why we're here, what's wrong with the world, how to be in the world. Um, you could see there's clear distinctions there um, with regards to these two meta narratives. So whether we're talking about the meta narrative of religion, where who we are may be defined as children of God, uh, creation. Um, it could be considered uh, stewards of the of the earth itself. Like so, there's there's something that comes with religion and definition of who we are. But then there's also the why we're here, which from a religious standpoint is in some ways based in morality and moral duties and things like that. And then, of course, what's wrong with the world? You know, within religion, you have the the uh, the principles of sin and uh, virtue. And these things are sinful. These things are virtuous um, and how to be in the world is the the path of righteousness defined by a religion um and then let's take the the other meta narrative you mentioned which is this this uh, we'll call it street culture where who we are so we're putting up the images right these these symbols represent who we are and we and so we're deifying uh a criminal right um or we're a, a criminal and a drug addict Right, so that we we deify the criminal and the drug addict. Is that defining who we are? Are we criminals and drug addicts? Um, and then the why we're here. Uh, again, where's where's the message? Where's the purpose and meaning? Other than like, if you look at cultural icons like uh, musical artists or a- any other uh, celebrity or person of influence that people look up to. It's what do they embody? What do they represent? And is this where we're getting our purpose and meaning, right? So if we look up to someone like 
Jay-Z is, do we take from that a purpose and meaning of uh, uh, obtaining uh, material things within the world of being famous, right? Being noticed, being looked at, um, being the envy of others. And then the what's wrong in the world. Okay. We know that there's a meta narrative playing there because in a, I'm sure in some of the imagery, I don't know. I, I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen the film, but I don't remember if they had any imagery of the oppression, right? Of, of, uh, police officers beating uh, white police officers beating on black men. Right. So that's an image. That's a cultural image that, who knows how many people get beat up by police officers in a day, but the only ones that are fed into the meta narrative are the ones that feed this what's wrong in the world, which is this paradigm of oppressor oppressed and then how to be in the world. Again, if we're taking these modern cultural icons of how to be in the world, it's, you know, uh, be greedy, be selfish, um, and things like that. So you, you do have two clearly very distinct meta narratives at work there. And we could, and I'm sure they go over in the film, or I, I believe they go over in the film as I remember, is the is how what community, family, and even uh culture looked like under one meta narrative and what family, culture, and community look like under a completely different, almost opposing meta-narrative. They did, yeah. I don't think it was as black and white as that. I think that they had kind of uh, implied the result of each one of those meta-narratives. This was more of a side comment that this guy Vody Bachman put out there, but I, I feel like it almost encapsulates the entire movie in, in just looking at, you know, what people learn from religion. Well, I guess what people were learning and taking away from religion in the early 1900s and what people are taking away from the new religion of this, this street culture. And, and I forget exactly how you put it, but it's, it's really interesting, man. They went on then to, to show some BLM protests. And you were talking about some of the uh, riots and stuff. That's exactly what they went into. And um, they they basically purported it to be... <laughs> oh, wait, this is Bodhi again. He said, it's not a war of the flesh. It's a spiritual warfare of principal, principalities and powers and not with people. That all this conflict is really rooted in ideas and beliefs as well as spirituality. And I've been, I've been saying that for a while now that... If everybody were to just take one step back and realize that they want the same things, they just have warring ideas, there could be actually a lot of middle ground to be reached here. And it was really cool to hear him say something like that right in there too. And to no surprise, this is about the point in the story that they introduced Karl Marx and showed a clip of one of the BLM founders saying that they're trained Marxists. And I'm really glad that they went into that. Because at, in, in the heat of all of 2020, 2021, and we saw all of these, these, this political action and these protests and all of this stuff, you have this emergence of an organization called Black Lives Matter. And uh, I'll remember the lady's name in a minute. 
coming out and saying that the the people that are running that group are trained Marxists, it it's like it's direct evidence that this is Marxism repackaged underneath, you know, instead of economic disparities, they're talking about racial disparities and repackaging it and running it the same as they did, you know, in Karl Marx's days. So anyway, they they posited the question, how does Marxism fit in with the Judeo-Christian African-American culture in the early 1900s? Um, when Marx said that his whole goal in life was to dethrone God and destroy capitalism, and these were people of God and functioning and thriving in capitalism. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really seem like uh, a guy that that they would they would be interested in in incorporating into their day to day lives. You know what I mean? Right. And I mean that's the nature. I would call it a flavor of neo Marxism is what we're seeing today. It's not exactly what Marx envisioned. Um, there's been much work done by other. Uh, communist ideologues that have contributed to what we're experiencing now. I'd say at the heart of it, there's the exploitation of, of inequity, right? So inequity is unequal outcome. And when you can point out that there is an unequal outcome, well, then you can exploit that by what they, what, what we've uh, called identity politics, right? So you, rather than dealing with individuals, con d discussing individuals or treating people as individuals, you boil everyone down to these group identities. And then you place these group identities at odds with other group identities with the, the, uh, the uh, dichotomy of oppressor oppressed, right? So this this is being used, and I, and I do see this definitely as this neo-Marxist movement um, as definitely something that's beyond ideological. There is definitely a spiritual element to it, and, and I believe that, that's, that you, they're integral. Like You can't really separate it in this scenario because we're dealing with an ideological war as well as a spiritual war and they and they're and they're intertwined there's really no separating it and and i right. think that's clear by the messaging that you're seeing in the mainstream narratives that they you know they pick that they pick that wedge point which is inequity so they're like boom yes there is unequal outcome and then they they propose a solution that is basically just destructive. There's no let's build this, let's build that. It's the inequity is is rooted. This is the theory, right? This is the ideology that the inequity is rooted in quote unquote systems of power, right? And it's these systems of power which are you know amorphous um, that you target. That you say we must tear down pretty much everything. And it's really, it's, it's something that appeals, especially to young people, because young people are always looking at the inequity of their own positions versus other people's positions. So they look at uh, people who have more money. They look at people who seem to have more influence. They look at people who have more material things or live in different neighborhoods. And they, this is an easy wedge point 
for people because you've heard, you know, we have the idiom of the grass is always greener and you can play that on anyone, right? You can play the grass is always greener on any group of people. And so that they're exploiting that sense of inequity that people experience and then turning people against each other by these identity groups. I'm so glad that you went through that in, in the level of detail that you did because all they really did to explain, you know, the Marxist worldview is, uh, is to basically say that it's, it comes down to relationships of power, like you just said, and it's a war between those who control the means of production and those who don't, those who had power and those who did not, the oppressors and the oppressed, the haves, the have nots, the, uh, what is it? How do you say it again? The, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat? The bur- yeah, the proletariat oh, and the bourgeoisie. That's under bourgeoisie. original Marxism. And that's why I'm saying that this is a new flavor altogether. We'll call it neo-Marxism. Right. Really, I call it wokeism. And wokeism is just a flavor of neo-Marxism, just like Maoism can be considered a flavor of neo-Marxism because Mao incorporated things that Marx did not incorporate into his theories um, like the work done by Antonio Gramsci on on cultural, the the importance of of undermining culture and history of yeah. of a population in order to get them to support the quote unquote revolution. They actually talked about Antonio Gramsci just a little bit later, but before that, I think it's important to note that. They, they gave a pretty decent analogy. They connected it back again to religion, and they said that if the devil came running in with horns and a pitchfork, everybody would run and hide. So the devil necessitates having to lie and deceive and infiltrate insidiously, um, and that's basically what Marxism is and offers. It's, it's very attractive on the surface, you know, kind of in the sense of we'll solve all your problems and your pains and offer you utopia and and what how they they framed it is they said that Marxism promises to deliver all that God delivers, but without God. It's like they're basically offering a stolen version of Christianity and trying to erase God at the same time while still trying to satisfy the the desire in the human heart to see all the wrongs in the world be made right. And that was probably Bodhi again because he's so fucking awesome. <laughs> right. And that, um, and that probably speaks in some part to the false virtue that has become part of neo-Marxism, right? We call it virtue signaling and things like that where people are ho- holding up what are clearly immoral ideas as virtues. And so you've even inverted morality um, so just like religion has a moral code that accompanies it, well, this new religion of wokeism has an inversion of morality and makes the immoral into something really uh, quote unquote moral, but it's, it's clearly immoral and it's, but it's, it's touted as and held up as virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you on that note, one of the other claims that they had was that a person that doesn't believe in God is significantly more susceptible to socialism and communism, but they never really went into why that's the case. But I've seen that you don't have diehard Christians 
running around advocating DEI work, but they're usually agnostic or atheist or or some kind of version of that, or maybe they're like they're spiritual in nature, but they don't follow any specific religion. Do you know what I mean? Why do you think that is? Uh, I would say, okay, so I can put this, I can make two, I'm going to give you two examples. So in typical communism, right, uh, God becomes the government, okay? The government is the one who's going to implement all the policies to bring forward your utopia and your equity, right? The, if we give the government all the power, then they will make all things equal. That's, that's, the, that's the belief there, right? So God replace, or government replaces God. Then you have a different flavor of communism, which I'll call the anarcho-communist, which believes that the self, the, the self takes the place of God, where the anarcho-capitalist believes in no government, but believes that uh, the individual is, is the ultimate uh, purveyor of or authority of morality and in a place where, or in a, in a community, I'll say, where there is no government, that men will act in a way to perpetuate this utopia by just choosing of their own volition to, uh, to cooperate, right? It's a, it's a, in both forms, there's a cooperative element, um, but in the case of the anarcho-capitalist, it's a, it's a self-worship, right? That the individual is the one who is the uh, authority in morality and in, and in cooperation. And in uh, your typical communism, um, you have the government, which is going to institute all the laws and policies and regulations and things necessary to in the end, make all people equal and therefore bring about a utopia. Um, and then there's the fallacy of the communists that when once that's in place, then the government will just melt away. It'll lose all its purpose because it's, it's domesticated all the people who are part of this into just acting right, okay, <laughs> in their view of things, that the, that the communist government that you gave all power and control to will just go away because we don't need it anymore because now we act right is, is kind of the theory or concept behind it. But in both cases, there is there what's there's in the anarcho-capitalist, there is nothing greater than self. And in the, uh, in the regular communist or the governmental communist, I guess would be a term I can use. Um, there's <laughs> the, the government itself is, is the highest authority. So is that, is that authority that is greater than the self? That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, the scariest part is that when they reviewed the effects of Marxism worldwide in, in history, they said that every single time ever, not even like 99%, but 100% of the time in history that Marxists have gotten their hands on control, it ends up with tens of millions of people dead and an even more oppressive regime than what the people were fighting against in the first place. And it's never once ended up in utopia or peace or, or any of the things that people are actually fighting for. Right. <laughs> and the uh, justification is, oh, they didn't do it right. 
Just put <laughs> me in charge and I'll do it right. <laughs> You'd think with, with historical precedent like that, that people wouldn't fall for it again, that they'd be like, you know what? I don't think we should go for this. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, well, it but, also, it also demonstrates the importance of erasing history and why these same activists who claim themselves to be trained Marxist are so determined to tear down statues and rewrite history um, because it's, it, it's that distortion of history that allows for these things to come about. Right. I mean, yeah. it, it's interesting to me that you can uh, take your average university student and if you ask them about the the pitfalls and problems of national socialism in the form of Nazism out of Germany, they could speak well on it and point out the atrocities committed by it. Um, but ask them the same thing about Mao, Maoism or the Bolshevikism or Leninism of the Soviet Union, and they'll fall short. They, they, it, they'll be hard-pressed to actually point out any disparities, any issues, any atrocities, because it's, it's no longer part of the education, either that or it's glossed over in a way to uh, emphasize the quote-unquote positive or to completely fabricate the quote-unquote positive and to minimize or erase the negative impact. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I had heard of communism, socialism. I heard people running around saying, oh, goddamn commies. And it, and it was a concept, but I couldn't, I couldn't have told you what it meant or why it was bad or who had used it in the past. You know, I just thought it was like synonymous with Russians or Nazi or something. But I really, I had no distinction until probably after college when I, when I think somebody was having, someone I was having a conversation with, they brought it up and I was like, you know what? I don't really know what that means. Let me Google it real quick and started learning a little bit about it here and there. But well, okay. So on one end, you have the older generations that have seen communism firsthand and fought in wars against commies. And on the second hand, you've got the younger generations that have no idea what it even is. It sounds like a utopia, and so it sounds attractive, and they they entertain it. But the older generations know how terrible it can be. But just as we were talking about in last episode slightly, there is a whole other layer to this. It's not like communism doesn't exist on the planet today. It does. It exists in several different places, and if there was proper education of the different applications of these ideas and really talking to people about them like their ideas. Like you said, this is a form of neo-Marxism. This has been repackaged and rebranded and reapplied with a whole new flavor to it. But if you understand the ideas, the worldview behind it, well, then it, you look at it, you're like, oh, that's the same thing. This is just a different application, a different environment. And that's the a whole nother part because people and kids growing up that are, are pushing this stuff, they could easily go look, you know, they don't even have to go anywhere. Get on social media and hear Justin Trudeau talk about how much he admired how well China handled the pandemic 
because they had this totalitarian system that allowed them to just shut everybody down and nip COVID in the butt. All of this to say that they could go elsewhere on the planet today and get, you know, a firsthand experience of the effects of Marxism and communism, socialism, and all these ideas. So they then went on and played a clip of Lenin talking about his plan to take over the world um, and how it starts in Eastern Europe and, and then goes over through the masses in Asia. And then in the last act of extinguishing the last little bit of capitalism in the world would be to go into the USA. Um, but he said without attack, he said that the USA will fall like ripe fruit from a tree right into their hands after they're done with it. You know, and then they went into the theories of Antonio Granci, like you were just talking about. He's an Italian philosopher and a communist, and he's famous for saying that we will never defeat the West with guns and conflict, but rather we will defeat them through infiltration. And he says that this quote-unquote new order, aka socialism, will triumph by overwhelming Christianity through the institutions. When they go on to show examples of how prevalent his ideas are in our courtrooms, in our media, in academia, in our entertainment, even in our religious institutions, um, and it takes the form of cultural Marxism and critical theories. Grancy, he man, he understood that you need to destroy a country culturally if you're going to have a chance of destroying a country at all. And and you know they showed how it started showing up in in young people, impressionable college students, uh, especially those of wealthy parents in and around the year of 1913. And they showed a great example of you know effects of this that came not too much later. Um, if you remember, there was the, the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was basically the same type of thing. You had a bunch of privileged college kids taking a month off of work to go Occupy Wall Street and protest, and they even called themselves proletariats. Do you remember that? Yeah. They started then going into understanding the spirit of the time from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, when there was massive technological improvements with, you know, crazy scientific improvements and things like flight, electricity, infrastructure, cars and engines, um, energy production. And, and all at the same time, there was a rapid deconstruction that was going on with theology. And as people moved away from religious convictions, they moved into non-religious explanations for all things. And I wanted to bring this up with you specifically because it sounds a lot like the materialist, mechanistic materialist worldview that, that you talk about. This kind of godless, everything is parts. Will you talk a little bit into that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It's definitely uh, a necessary element for Marxism as well, because remember, Marx's purpose was to destroy God. Um, so you you have to latch on to a worldview that can adequately describe and explain the world around you. And in comes mechanistic materialism. So mechanistic materialism can be used effectively when describing most physical phenomena. Okay, so it's not that it's inherently bad, but it's an incomplete worldview. And that much is clear by the fact that it 
there is much of the human experience that mechanistic materialism cannot explain. And when you hold that worldview, you rather than attempting to use that worldview to try to explain the unexplainable, like what we call supernatural, paranormal, uh, metaphysical um, experiences, uh, uh, consciousness, things like that, if you don't have it within your model to explain it, you either reject it outright or you come up with a, uh, an insufficient explanation, right? So that's why in order to destroy spiritual thought, right, or religion or anything else, you supplant it with a system or a worldview that explains things from a purely uh, materialistic or mechanistic point of view. And this is, I would say, at the root of a diminishing returns within the sciences. Um, because if you can actually broaden your worldview to incorporate things beyond the physical, and, and you see some of that in you know, quantum physics and theoretical physics, they're you know, struggling with these things that seem to be beyond uh, explanation in the physical world, and they you know, come up with all kinds of fancy maths to try to describe it. Um, but without expansion of the mechanistic materialistic worldview to incorporate the ecstatic or spiritual experience or, uh, phenomena of consciousness, whether it be, uh, telekinetic or telepathic phenomena, it, it falls short and it, and it's deliberately not, uh, or, or I should say it deliberately does not support any religious ideas because religious ideas are dealing with the metaphysical and the supernatural and things beyond what a mechanistic materialistic worldview can do. So in reality, uh, it, it, well, let's look back in history. Many of the greatest minds in science were actually in some form or another deists. They believed in God. And it, it's funny to me that, today people can consider themselves superior to you know people like einstein or tesla or you know even going further back into people like uh, isaac newton and you know these these are people that did not exclude god from the equation but were but now we have because mechanistic materialism is so firmly rooted as the basis, the worldview upon which scientists operate, they've now reached this point of diminishing returns. Whereas if they incorporate an understanding, uh, a worldview that accommodates the spiritual, the paranormal, the supernatural, and all of that, then we can, we can actually take the scientific method, because that's all science is, is a method of exploring and, and, and hypothesizing and proving. We could take that model and actually use it in, uh, in disciplines such as you know, parapsychology or supernatural phenomenon or consciousness phenomenon, because we can actually structure an experiment, because we don't reject the idea outright or immediately turn to a mechanistic, materialistic way of explaining it. So science is not necessarily rooted in mechanistic materialism. Science is a method. 
And if you're limited by a mechanistic, materialistic worldview, you've only limited the capacity in which science can serve you. So there, th this is a necessary element because, for one, they, those who are trying to push this totalitarianism need to get rid of a, a being greater than government, right, which is, is God. So they, they, it's almost a necessity to completely replace it with now, now our gods are the science, which is a ridiculous term in and of itself, and the government, right? So these are the gods of the new religion of neo-Marxism or wokeism is the science, which is basically uh, science that supports our political ends and economic theories um, and is rooted in mechanistic materialism. That's the science. And then you have the government, which will bring about this utopia if we just give them all the power. Dude, it's, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like it's impressive that you see these guys like Nikola Tesla and, you know, these other engineers coming out of the early 1900s and what they're able to do with science. And so it, it puts science up into this high point up onto this pedestal for people to admire. And then if you can slowly shift the worldview to remove the equation of God into that, then it will inherently limit the scientific exploration, which is something I've really been wondering about why science has plateaued, but that makes a lot of sense. And it also then can infiltrate into other areas of the life and keep people limited in that way if they really aren't accounting for God. I mean, even agnostic would allow them to be open enough to to see things outside that mechanistic, materialistic worldview. Right. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. They, they, uh, they talked a little bit after that about... Uh, how how to change America's hegemony and how it had to be slowly and through generation after generation. And they actually did a great job in showing how people tend to assume that mandatory governmental education has, has been the norm throughout the history of the world. But in reality, it hasn't even been the norm throughout American history. And that before the latter part of the 19th century, it was actually unthinkable for most people that the government would ever be able to be in charge of educating our children. And you know, Bodhi, Bodhi Bachman again says that education is not even mentioned in the U.S. Constitution at all. It was not even part of the purview of the United States government. Has that been your experience with your experience with law and your studies? Well, yeah. I mean, in reality, the the history of government's involvement in education would probably come about in maybe the late 19th century, but definitely in the early 20th century. And again, this is a, a paradigm shift. So we have a shift from an agrarian society to an industrial society and the need for a standardization of, of education um, became just became, I don't want to say necessary, but it, it became uh, uh, better 
for us as a society to grow into and using standards for education. Um, but up until that point, we could say that universities offered that at some level and that education up to the university level was done in the home, right? Or on a small community-based model, right? So you may have had well, a local schoolhouse that accommodated kids from the age of five through 16 uh, for all the people in that community. And it was probably an effective way of, of educating because your older kids are reinforcing their understanding of subjects by teaching it to the younger kids in the classroom. So I definitely see the problem with government education. Um, but again, I think this, this move or push towards government education is, is by design as well, because now you can also use the public school system as a tool for indoctrination, right? So if you're looking to shape the ideas um, or the way your community or your society thinks, you can have something in place that is, you know, ideologically steering them in a certain direction. And, and I think that's probably what, why originally the, uh, the industrialization of America led to a form of standardized education was because we were looking to create people that we could put into the industrial world and serve a, as a cog in the, in the machine of industrialization. Hmm. They actually said that before this education was controlled in the church and in the home. That's the two main places that people, that kids went to learn. They had home schools, they had dame schools, which I hadn't heard of before. Dame schools are basically small, privately run schools, local schools. And then you had one room schoolhouses so basically come over to this building. Like I see a lot of that in rural African cities and stuff where kids from around the area go and they all sit in one room while the teacher goes over the material for the day. You know, but that's how everybody was educated up until the early 1900s. Like they started in the late 1800s for sure, but it really took hold in the early 1900s. And, and they went on to say that with a Marxist worldview, you actually need to control education in order to, to supplant Christianity and replace it with secularism and apply Darwin ideas and Marxist ideas into childhood development. Um, the claim was, well, let me actually first say, I, I think this is actually where the the vast amount of pushback came when, when people started um, trying to teach evolution in school. You know, there was that one dude who actually ended up in a courtroom because he started teaching evolution in school, in a, in a middle school or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and they kicked it out. But it wasn't that much later that, uh, you know, they started banning prayer in school in 1962, and then they banned Bible reading in 1963. And so from the 1920s into the 1960s, there was this slow removal of of religion and... Bible study and prayer from the school system. And and everybody today is like, oh, well, we don't want to put prayer into school. Well, that's just dangerous. We don't want everybody to be coming out of, you know, school thinking that they're in this cult and 
they're you know running around killing people because they're crazy and they've been indoctrinated into Christianity. But in reality, it's just the most recent like 50 years that we haven't had prayer in it or Bible reading or any type of religious undertone to our education system. Like what we're dealing with now is is the new version of education. It's interesting the assumptions that people make. Right. And with the uh, elimination of religion from education, I mean, the, the greatest tragedy there is not necessarily the doctrine of any particular religion, but it's the morality, right? So not only are you missing something cultural, which is your religion or whatever else, but there's something much more important there that's, I, I think, uh, absolutely essential to a proper education, and that's morality. Um, if you don't have a moral authority within education and you're also having this move away from religion, um, then you, 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 you're, you've pushed morality completely out of the picture. And I think that's where, where things get really dicey and we, we hit the slippery slope is when you eliminate morality, lots of bad things can happen, <laughs> as I think we're seeing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you say that because right after this, they go into talking about how the adults that that adopted this stuff that were exposed to this type of education, um, they grew up, sorry, the kids that were exposed to this grew up into adults and they started to shift the trajectory of the entire country to fit a more egalitarian collectivist worldview. And today we're seeing the fruit of all of that ideology and it's doing exactly what it was meant to do. It's creating a, a godless, degenerative, uneducated class of Marxists. So they called it secular humanism. And then they went into good old Yuri Bezvanov. <laughs> they started talking about the demoralization of a country and they quoted him and showed him talking about how people, despite uh, a preponderance of evidence, all the facts in the world sitting right in front of them, um, are incapable of coming to a rational conclusion or defending themselves once you've demoralized them. And they talked about how people who graduated in the 60s were already the third generation of this effort of communism. That puts things into a massive perspective where the third generation of this communistic subversion in the U.S. were people graduating from school in the 60s. And those people today are in positions of power, and I, I don't want to say positions of power like, like the DEI idea of power and all of that stuff that we're talking about, but they're in positions like lawmaking and banking and and you know Bezmanov goes on even more we've watched a lot about his a lot, a lot about him and a lot of his stuff um but he talks about how the united states has been in an undeclared war against the basic principles and the foundation of the united states for for like over a hundred years now if it's the third generation of these people of this effort was graduating high school in the 60s when do you think they started it had to have been late 1800s, right? Or early 1900s at least. Right. Well, it depends on what you want to point to as the start. I would say the economic 
and political theories of Marxism had definitely made it into the United States by the 20s and 30s. But you really have to go back before that because notice, I love the word he's using there, demoralization, right? Um, you really have an undermining of Judeo-Christian principles beginning in the 1800s. Um, and you have the, the spiritualism movements that rather than, uh, so spiritualism movements I would look at as like the foundation of what we would maybe today call um, new age religion or uh, some form of neo-gnosticism or something like that, where rather than there being an absolute morality and an absolute authority on morality, we it's been twisted around to be this relativistic view of morality. And in, and the relativism comes in, in different forms. Um, it could be cultural relativism. It, it could boil down to the individual. But these, these are really questions of morality are rooted in a spiritual ideal. So you look at like the undermining of the spiritual ideal of moral realism or an absolute morality or an absolute truth really beginning in the 1800s. So you could say that the demoralization and the undermining of Judeo-Christian principles within the Western world began with this uh, new form of spirituality, which incorporated relativistic views, not only relativistic morality, but a relativistic truth as well. Yeah. I think you're right. I was trying to do the math on how many generations from the 60s ago, what year that might have been. But like it really, if you're just looking at the results and, and the implementation of certain ideas and, and systems and stuff, it the late 1800s is exactly when it all started. Um, so that was basically the end of the part of the movie where they go over... Um, the lie. <laughs> right, the lie. Um, and the, the subversion and the undermining of culture. And at this point, they kind of shift gears and they start addressing the fact that uh, a lot of black people believe now, due to all of this stuff that we've just gone through, that the country is one of the worst places in the world to live and that they're so incredibly um, oppressed. But then they they contrast that with the reality that uh, black people in this country are the freest and most prosperous black people that have ever existed in the history of the world. And that there's not actually any other place on the planet that exists today that's better for black people to live in. And if it, and they said if it were true, then you you would think that all these people would be trying to leave the United States, but they're not. They're just staying here. And when you look around the world, there all of these other you know say African countries, they've a lot of them have a. a lottery programs that are filled to the brim with people that have applied just for a chance to come to the United States. And you'd think that they wouldn't want to come here and be as oppressed as all the people that are already here that are black. And, you know, the whole thing just kind of falls apart when you look at it in a broader context like that. And, you know, they go on to make what I think is one of the, the central claims of the entire movie. They claim that African-Americans in this country, which I guess is um, 
implied by well, the term African Americans. Yeah, born born <laughs> born in this country. Well, because yeah. you're talking about like in reality, immigration is still happening from Africa, right? What are those what are those crazy Africans thinking coming to the most racist nation on earth? Exactly. So I guess that I guess you're right. The the African Americans that were born in this country have been used as a device to help commit all Americans of all colors and all status to a slavery that's far worse than any enslaved African has ever experienced. That was probably the most bold and in-your-face claim that I think underpins the entire point of the movie. They want people to wake up to this fact that African Americans have been used as a tool in order to enslave the entire country. What do you think about that? So basically, uh, reality, right? So they, they're, they're making a distinction here between an ideal or a concept or a theory of what America is versus the reality. Um, and, and the, the prosperity, the culture and everything else that exist as it is. Now I'm curious if they're okay. So you're saying that this is okay. So this is the next, this is the next part of the film where they're trying to demonstrate the reality. However, yeah. we're also well, me, working with it. Okay. Me, go ahead. Uh, Cause I was me, saying, we're me... still working within a context of, of a, a culture that has fallen, right? It is, it is, worse off now than it was in the past. So in dealing with that reality of the, the, the culture being where it's at, in spite of them still being the, you know, wealthiest or freest group of African uh, people with African ancestry in the world. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I need to understand how, how this is being reconciled. Yeah, so let me kind of set it up for you and give a little bit more context. The, they're basically talking about how black people were incredibly prosperous, which they do get into a little bit later with Booker T. Washington, um, up until, say, the 20s and 30s and, and 40s, and that there was this massive demoralization and this move away from God and into secularism. Then they go through and make this kind of central point that, you know, the, the claim that I just read out, the claim that African-Americans have been used as a, a device to commit all Americans of all colors to, to a slavery far worse than, you know, anyone's ever actually experienced. And then for the rest of the movie, they go into grounding that assessment. And they go through right after this, into talking about how, um, like why black people were susceptible to this, this communism, these ideas and what or happened with targeted. Them. Right. And then they, because of this, the, the communists were able to identify the racial disparities, the racial differences and the tension in this country as the weak link and the most vulnerable point in our social fabric. And they took the economic model of Marx and applied it to race and turned the poor black people into uh, the factory workers and the whites into the business owners. And then they basically took that wedge 
that they drove in between blacks and whites and continued to strike it over and over and over until the fabric of our society broke. And that's when you start seeing basically the degeneration of the African-American communities. So it was up until that breaking point, which they didn't tell you exactly when yet, but they, they do get into that later. So that's, I'm curious what you think about that claim just in general. Um, we'll go into their justification of it in a minute. I, I would say I'd like to go into the details of it. Like what exactly are they pointing out as causal, let's say in the early 20th century, um, I think it becomes obvious as soon as you move into the late 50s, early 60s. But I am curious to see where they go with the the genesis of this phenomenon and how it looked and how it manifested in, let's say, the early 20th century before I go into mm -hmm. comment on it. Okay. So they said that this permeated for over a century through various tactics like writing, education, journalism, music, film, and other vehicles to carry the ideology, the ideas that they had used as this wedge. And every time somebody started engaging with it, it was basically striking it over and over and over. And in 1964, all of a sudden, there was widespread rioting and looting that spread out all over Harlem, Rochester, Newark, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, Cleveland, and Chicago, all within days of each other in 1964. Um, they said as if, as if an unseen hand had given the signal and sent them all off. And that's when they introduce a character named Saul Alinsky. And I'd never heard of him. Um, like I'm sure most people haven't, but apparently he to the have nots looked like a savior. Which, funny enough, he was considered the father of community organizing and the, the progressivism that we see manifest across the country today. And he was a very practical and tactical Marxist that believed that power is never given, it must be taken. And he wrote his famous book um, called Rules for Radicals, which he, funny enough, dedicated to Lucifer by the way, right in there on one of the pages, it says to Lucifer. Did you see that? <laughs> Could you yeah. imagine? <laughs> no, that, I mean, but it actually, it actually makes perfect sense, you know, because, it does. you know, it's, it's in contradiction to traditions and laws and, you know, uh, symbolically the archetype that Lucifer represents in religion is the radical, right? The opposer, the, the, uh, the contradiction, right, to God's law, the 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 rebel, right, the the quintessential rebel against um, morality, right. So it's it makes perfect sense to to contribute his his book or to uh, to dedicate his book to such a to such a force. I find it. Well, I'll just leave it at this. Your your social justice warriors of today have everything that they represent and everything they stand for is rooted in the philosophies and writings of Mr. Alinsky. Yep. In fact, um, there was two books, the rules for radicals and the communist manifesto by Marx and co-written by Engels. 
um, these were the two seminary documents for the progressive left. Well, I shouldn't say were, I should say are the two seminary documents for the left, meaning um, that they were like the religious text that provided the framework, which was the manifesto, and the strategy, which was the rules for radicals of the activism that we see today. And so right. from, from that I, point... I would say that there's, there's definitely some more you can add in there. Um, like we talked about earlier, Gramsci, I think, is, is, uh, is an important piece of all that. Um, if you look at the uh, Frankfurt School and uh, and the likes of oh what was his name I'm trying to remember the the Frankfurt School guy's name um, yeah it escapes me right now but it was uh, the these are other aspects of the philosophy and of course you can't leave out you know uh, the postmodernists like Foucault who wedded all who who provided a framework and a philosophical basis for relativism to be incorporated into all this as well. So it's, I would say there's definitely, uh, a, uh, we'll say canon, <laughs> right? We'll, we'll call it the neo-Marxist <laughs> canon. And it goes, it, it definitely goes beyond those two pieces. Uh, there's a lot there that contributed to where we're at and what we're experiencing. And, uh, we'll just, uh, lump all that together as, uh, as, uh, Marxist canon for now. Dude, it's funny because as they were saying that in the imagery that they showed on the screen, they showed a little tiny piece of the book called The 48 Laws of Power. And I was like, oh, you guys did your homework. That book, <laughs> like a book goes right along with a lot of this. Uh, we've talked a lot about it in the past in, in other episodes and stuff, but it was no surprise to me that I, I saw one of those pages in there. Because that's that's another one of these books that I think weighs heavily that allows some of this stuff to take hold. However, the way that they're framing it here is that those two books, the Communist Manifesto and the Rules for Radicals, is you could basically take the entire worldview and the strategy from those two books that was then implemented in in movements popping up all over what they called industrial cities in the 60s and 70s and i listed out a few of them that i grabbed uh, there's an organization called flight there's another organization called two another organization called build and i think you would you could throw in like black panthers and and other groups like that in there pretty easily um and people thought that these were Black-founded organizations ran by Black people for the uplift of Black people. But in, in the short films that Saul Alinsky put out, he actually showed that it was actually white Marxists behind most, if not all, of those movements, all of those organizations. Guys like Ed Chambers, which worked for Alinsky, um, you know, he went on to say that every organization that they built, uh, they built on a multi- issue basis and he believed that organizing around a single issue was like locking yourself into a straitjacket like locking out other people that may be sympathetic that don't have any skin in the game but also locking you into a single issue so right. taking on the multi-issue basis if you start looking around you look at a lot of the civil rights movement stuff that they had going. None of those were single issue. None of the big ones were single issue movements. And you even look at like BLM and stuff. You're like, okay, you're BLM, but you're 
also all about intersectionality. And so now you can pull in trans rights with Black Lives Matter with all of the other stuff that you start seeing. It's like that's that's right out of Saul's book. That's right out of his strategy of creating a multi-issue basis. Right. And which is also demonstrates the importance of identity politics, because when you're able to identify a multitude of victim groups, then you can you can author all the uh, grievances and issues for the multitude of groups and kind of just throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. Yep. I really do think that that's, that's why we see a list of demands and concepts like intersectionality because you can pull together an entire like group of quote unquote marginalized people. You end up with the control of a democracy is what you end up with. You just need 51% right. and you got it. Actually, it's, it's even more insidious than that because it, it, here, I'll give you an example. So on the, in the intersectional bingo card, right? Uh, you have, who knows, 52,000 different victim groups, right? What's the one group that does not appear on there? And you could actually probably name two or three, but what, what stands out the most? What, what doesn't make the intersectional bingo card? Hmm. I don't believe they have a box for straight white man. Right. Which implicitly creates straight white men as a victim to all other groups, right? So when you start turning all these groups, all these identity groups against each other, it automatically creates a victim group in the one group you won't acknowledge, right? So even that group, which you don't give any airtime to as far as being a victim, you make them out to be the ultimate suppressor, right, or oppressor. But in reality, you actually implicitly create a victim group in that group. So you could say, like, uh, what, what I could observe is not, like, you could say, okay, white people. Okay, you could call that group, uh, or, or maybe I should say white straight people. Um, you could, that could be one group identity. You could say uh, white men. You could say uh, white straight men. You could say white Christian men. Right. You could you could actually you could form many different groups out of the implications of the groups that you are giving oppressed slash victim status to. It's going to create a polarization, which is automatically going to create a victim group out of the groups you don't name. So it's actually this insidious way of placing everyone into a victim group and getting them to fight through this identity politics. So even the people who see the ideology for what it is as this, you know, this the wokeism as some form of neo-Marxism trying to infiltrate and undermine society in order to create this totalitarianism. Well, implicitly, you've actually created identity politics in the groups who see through it as well. And they're going to start playing the identity politics game of like, well, well, now I need to stand up for white men or I need to stand up for white male straight people, what, whatever it is. Like you, you automatically will create that dynamic in that group think because people will look out and say, OK, they're giving these special privileges to all these victimized quote unquote, victimized groups, which actually in turn victimizes my group. 
And now you're playing the, the identity politics game, which is, again, it, it's a necessity for in order to bring about a totalitarian government under the guise of, of Marxism, you need that division. You need those groups to face off. You need them to polarize themselves against each other. And you've done it with everyone. And you'll, you'll see that now. Even people who are fully aware that this is a Marxist movement and recognize it for what it is, they're falling into the trap of identity politics because they're one of the groups or they see themselves as identifying with one of these groups that is, that is being designated the oppressors, right? So they're seeing that as making them oppressed, as making them victims. And so it's, it's a great trap because it's, it's working across the spectrum of ideological beliefs. It's funny that you explain it that way today, because I literally earlier today was talking with uh, Matthew in our Telegram group, and I was saying the same thing. I was talking to him about how there's like once you have a victim class identified, you are either in or you are out. You put forth that that idea. Then you look at it and you're like, oh, that, that's not me. And a bunch of other people then pick that up and say, well, that is me. I am a victim. And they start pointing the fingers at you because you're not in their box. And next thing you know, you get a large group of people actually victimizing the person who was like, I'm not a victim. And then guess what? Now they get defensive. Now they feel like the victims. And now what do you have? You have a polarized community with everybody pointing the finger at, at the people that aren't in their group. And everybody's feeling like victims, whether or not anyone actually was a victim to start out with. It's, right. it's really insidious, like you're saying. So to go from here, um, they went into talking about how Saul also liked to use a spokesperson type of representative for a movement or for an organization. And that person usually was a person of color. And he particularly liked, um, I guess, women in the, in the more recent years. And and just for reasons why, like we just went through, I think it's kind of obvious why that would be the case, but they went through and showed how there was a lot of pastors actually, for some reason that he chose and put in front of movements and organizations, guys like even Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and guys like this were kind of hoist up and um, they kind of drew through until they could connect it to BLM and how that's run by three black women who quote unquote have love and concern for black people. And, and the guy, uh, Chad, who was one of the founders of this, this whole movie, um, and the directors, he went and did his research and found that there's a Jewish socialist dude by the name of Eric Mann, who's actually the one who started the BLM organization. And he's had a career in doing communist organization for democratic societies, sorry, the democratic society, um, the black Panther party, uh, STS, uh, weatherman. And he's been in and out of prison for political issues and, and all kinds of stuff. And he's the one started BLM, but also trained the three ladies that are running it. So, when when Patrice Cullors actually said that she's a trained that they're all trained Marxists, she was telling the truth because she was trained by Eric Mann, 
which if you get into a little bit of what he believed and what he wants, um, they showed a video of him saying in his own words that he wants to free the two plus million U.S. prisoners that are incarcerated. He wants to reduce the police officer count by 100,000. And he wants government funded, free, paid, legal abortion without parental consent for minors. And he wants reparations for the transatlantic slave trade. He wants unconditional amnesty and options for citizenship for all illegal immigrants. Well, I shouldn't say illegal immigrants, all immigrants, period. Um, and the end of the, the war on drugs and crime and gangs and terror. And, and he believed that all white-run organizations would never have a transformative effect on society. So he focused all of his efforts to recruiting young, primarily women, blacks and Latinos who want to be revolutionaries. And he trains them to lead social movements using Marxism. This is all documented and advertised by him and the people that he's worked with. It's like, it's, it's just there out in the real world for you people to look at. It's, it's crazy. And like, I had heard of this, but I didn't really understand what it meant to be a Marxist, to be a trained Marxist. It wasn't until, you know, having conversations with you that I went back and started looking at the ideologies of Marx and, and how it has been implemented around the world to where I actually am seeing the 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 weight of being a trained Marxist and and what they're doing and going around training people in Marxism that's crazy to me. Yeah, this also happens to be the first time they dropped the term "useful idiots" <laughs> and referred to the three women like Patrice Colors that are running the the BLM nonprofit. Right. Yeah, and and it's uh, it, here's the here's a here's a basic synopsis of the useful idiot. Um, and how it usually plays out for them in a communist revolution. So when you're seeking your revolution, right, and you're, so you're seeking to overthrow the powers that be and implement your new tyrannical form of government, well, the first people you need to get rid of are the people who are willing to stand up against something and overthrow it. Right. So this is why they're referred to as useful idiots, because as soon as we've implemented our totalitarianism, they need to be the first people we get rid of, because they're the ones who are going to likely be disenchanted and actually have the skill set to fight against what you what you put in place. Right. So you've put in place your quote unquote utopian uh, <laughs> totalitarianism, and these people will be disenchanted because they they may be true believers in that there was going to be some form of utopia that that emerged and when this utopia fails to emerge well they're actually trained to organize the masses against the powers that be so you don't want them to turn the people against your new totalitarian government so this is why we, we would refer to them as useful idiots is because they're going to be the first ones gone. You need to get rid of them first because they pose the biggest threat to your new authoritarian regime. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. You're literally training people to, to lead revolutions. And then once you take power, you need all those people that know how to lead revolutions gone. Otherwise, they'll lead a revolution against you. It's funny, uh, Carol Swain again chimed in here um, at this part of the movie and reinforced what I think is the main point that I brought up earlier. She said that uh, 
that that BLM, quote unquote, BLM is a white run organization that's using people of color to destroy America. And I'm like, that's basically what they said just a minute ago before they went into all of this stuff. And she said, if they, if you can create enough hate and war so that the commies can come in and pretend to be your friend and save you, then you end up with what we're seeing today. And she said, in, in reality, the origin story of America includes slavery, but it also includes pain and suffering and bloodshed of all people. The Irish, the Jews, they all shared similar histories, actually. And in fact, the entire origin story of America is one of suffering and sacrifice to create a truly unique and free nation that really nothing like this has ever existed on the surface of the planet to date. In fact, I think I've heard you say that several times. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So this is when they get into my favorite part of the movie. I'm I'm turning into a huge Booker T. Washington fan just because I keep finding so much so much of his stuff that I agree with. And so they they put up a couple of quotes here. I, I want to read them and just kind of get your your thoughts on them. The first one says, "It is a great satisfaction to have connected with a race of men and women who are able to do something." something that enhances the comforts and conveniences of life. As you go on, increasing your ability to do things of value, you will find that the problem, which often nowadays looks more and more difficult, you'll find a solution. But that gradually becomes easier and easier to do so. That's, that's like the solution to what we're looking around. No one's running around trying to increase their value in society. They're demanding society shift for their benefit. Right. Yeah. So, that's the, uh, the sense of entitlement. And that, again, yep. that's why Marxism is such an easy sell on the young people. It's because they have not yet realized their value and what they can contribute of value to society. And so the idea that, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it. The government's going to control everything and just make sure you're taken care of regardless of whether or not you have something to va of value to add or not. You know, so that's very enticing to a young person who, by their own assessment, doesn't have much in the way of value to add to society. Yeah, and think about that. If, if you come out of college and you're like, man, I wish that the world took care of me like my mom did. And everybody should keep producing stuff because we can have this utopia. If everybody just pitches in all the stuff they have and then boom, you get it. The, but then what it does, it produces more and more people with less and less skill sets, less and less capability to do stuff of value. And then the system that everybody's contributing to dries up because nobody, once that older generation that actually contributes things of value, once they die off, there's nothing left of value being fed into the system. And you have things like famine happen. Right. But that's, that's almost ne a necessity. Th this is, uh, in reality, uh, another, we'll, we'll call it a, a, maybe not a cornerstone, but an, another pillar of uh, communism would be the dependency of the individual on the state, right? So the destruction of economic prosperity and things like that become an, a necessity, because once you've created a dependency on the state, 
Remember, the state is this thing that we want to replace God. So if you become dependent on the state, it becomes the, the source of your nourishment. It becomes the source of your information and, and education. It becomes the source of everything that you see as necessity to life is all coming to you from your new God, the government, right? And that is almost essential, right? To, for people to undermine their own traditions, their own culture, and their own society, make them dependent so that they don't have any uh, capacity to take care of themselves, to raise families, to do any of the things that independence represents, right? So once they're dependent, then again, it's an easy sell because they're already looking at the benefits they receive from the state as being essential and that the promise is even more and greater things to come from the state. Let's just give them more power and more control so that I can have a house like Elon Musk has and I can, you know, drive the cars that Jay-Z drives. Like that's how they, this is the imagination of this equity, you know, this equitable society is that I'm going to be lifted up to where all these rich and wealthy people are with no contribution necessary. <laughs> it's just going to happen because the government's going to equalize everything. And, and so that's, that's the romantic imagination of it. The reality is, no, we're just going to tear everyone else down to where you're at. <laughs> like, you're not going up. Everyone's path on this is down. You know, like you'll be lucky if you, if you stay where you're at. You know, if you're at the very bottom, you, you might be lucky enough to stay where you're at, but everyone else is being pushed down to where you're at. That's, that's the unromanticized uh, vision of what, what, what's in store. Well, if you're lucky, it's to where you're at, if not below. I would assert that it's probably tearing everybody down to bare minimum. <laughs> it's not even to, yeah, you, will, you know, poor you will mommy take care of me. You will live in a pod and you will eat the bugs and you will like it. <laughs> you will love it. <laughs> All right. So here's another one. I'm just going to run through a couple of his quotes because I think it paints a really good picture for, you know, what I would consider like the antithesis of, of the, the, the woke ideas, you know, like W.E.B. Du Bois, they talk about him again too. So it's almost like we could see again, painting that, that difference between these two characters and how following each one of them can turn out different, different results. So here's, here's another one. We must recognize the fact that our capacity is very largely different than that of the white race. I know they like to say the opposite. It sounds well in composition. It does well in rhetoric and makes splendid essays. But to say that we are equal to whites is to say that slavery was no disadvantage to us. This is all we can say of ourselves. But with proper development, our condition and capacity will be the same as those people of any other race. And I loved this quote because I feel like he satisfied the concerns of people that people had with slavery and the impacts of slavery while also saying it doesn't hold you back from what you're wanting to become. And I, right. And he's actually know. talking to people who went through it. 
who actually experienced slavery. Who were slaves and now are freed. Not right. the children of the children's children of slaves. I just loved it. That, that one that one really got to me. Okay, here's another one, the last one, but I think it speaks a lot about his values. He said, no one ever loses anything by being a gentleman or a lady. No person ever lost anything by being broad. Remember that if we are kind and useful, if we are moral, no matter what people say about us, they cannot pull us down. But on the other hand, if we are without the spirit of usefulness, if we are without morality, without economy and property, without all those qualities which go to make a people and a nation great and strong, no matter what we say about ourselves, we are losing ground. Nobody can give us these qualities merely by praising us and talking well about us. And when we possess these qualities, nobody can take them from us by speaking ill of us. I'm like, dude, this is exactly what the Marxist ideology takes away. It takes away the spirit of usefulness. It takes away kindness and morality. And it takes away economy and property. And it literally says that the, or he literally says that these are the qualities that makes a people and a nation strong and great. That to me, black and white, that's what's going on. That's right. what they're hard talking to, about in this entire movie. Right. Hard to imagine why Booker T. Washington isn't held up a, as a great figure in history, right? He's a, he's a side note. Most people are completely unaware of. Yeah, I've, I had heard of the Tuskegee Institute and the Tuskegee Airmen and stuff. Never heard of Booker T. Washington before this movie. I'm like, where the hell have I been? Been under a rock this whole time. He's the one, I believe, that seeded the ideas that blacks should do the best with what they had. They went on to say that uh, they were working hard and earning things on their own. Uh, they built businesses, they built communities, they built churches. Uh, the idea that people needed to look to themselves and transform from within, that's what Booker T. Washington stood for. And um, there was a dude named Richard Samuel Roberts. They went through some of his work in this movie. And he was one of the only active black photographers in the 20s and 30s, especially in the South. He was one of half a dozen photographers over those two decades in the South. And the photos that he took for over 20 years throughout the 20s, the 30s, and a little bit beyond, um, they depicted an entirely different uh, view of what it meant to be black going through, you know, segregation, Jim Crow. These people were wearing suits. They were smiling. They were happy. They were prosperous. They had businesses. They had families and churches and communities. They had like, they had by dignity. every metric. Yeah. They had dignity. By every metric of, you know, the American dream, they were succeeding. And in every image throughout those, those 40 years or 20 years or whatever it was, you know, you could just see this happening, but slowly you could kind of see um, 
some of his photos once they they got into the the later days into the 60s and stuff when you started seeing some new characters coming into the photography and you started seeing um some some movements and stuff being taken pictures of you saw the faces of the people in his photography go from happy and optimistic and you know full of vitality to to anger and resentment and that's about when everything started shifting for them so the next thing that they talked about in the movie you know after going through all of those photos was that the entire african-american population's plight was not actually due to slavery because they had created the highest concentration of blacks with power and wealth during the 20s and 30s that far exceeds what we see today. Then they started to go into, you know, like Black Wall Street and Harlem and other things like that. There's a pretty cool story um, a little bit later that that talks about Booker T. Washington's uh, society club thing that he set up. And and one of his protégés went on to create a a real estate investment company and how that created um, Harlem. And then people educated blacks moved from Har- um, Alabama at the Tuskegee Institute all the way up to actually that wasn't in I'm trying to remember where exactly that was, but they were all at a school in Alabama, and all these educated people started moving up to Harlem, and they created one of many super, you know, affluent versions of these African-American communities. And, you know, by every metric, like we were just saying, the African-American people were thriving in the 20s and 30s, even though that's when everyone's like, well, we were under the white man's thumb because because of segregation, because of racism, and because of Jim Crow laws. And then we got this Black Wall Street thing going in Oklahoma, and then you burned it to the ground. They just like, they used a lot of these examples, uh, you know, to legitimize their claim of being victim, basically. But in reality, they started going through how prosperous these communities were. They started going through um, some of the things that had changed with the civil rights movement and how Martin Luther King was actually a socialist, you know, self-proclaimed socialist. And they asked the question, are we glorifying Martin Luther King's one speech like we're glorifying BLM today? And in 20 years from now, will BLM be the new MLK? I thought that was a very powerful question. History repeating itself. Is that the case? Then they started going well, back I, in time. I, 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 hold on, I want to I want to address something yeah. right there, right quick, because it's something that I noticed in recently. Right, I don't know if you remember they they passed a law like last year that outlawed lynching. Okay, now in reality, uh, lynching is illegal. Oh, it has been for a very <laughs> long time. Okay. And, but, but here's the thing when you're, when you consider that the media apparatus is also pushing this meta narrative, right? I can see 30 years from now where nobody's really around to remember that, like, what a pointless gesture that was. 
that it'll be held up as like this monumental moment in history when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez stood up against lynching, right? And it was such a, an amazing moment in our history. Like, was it? Like, she was stating the obvious. They had passed a law that was redundant and didn't actually achieve anything, but it's a great media bite to be used in the future. So, and I, and I bring up that example because I look at, you know, what now none of us, well, I mean, save my parents, my grandparents, things like that may, may have been witness to, but these, these moments that are propped up as, as if they were these, you know, monumental statements. And then you got to ask yourself, well, were they, were they really, you know, is this, was it such a radical idea or was it like everyone just kind of standing around like, uh, yeah, no, no shit, you know, like it's, I'm wondering how much of those historical moments, those historical speeches are now just video clips and sound bites that move people. But in the day and age, were they really that moving? Were they really that revolutionary were they really that out of character of the zeitgeist were, were were people really not on that level yet or is it a restatement of something that was obvious to most and now is propped up as some uh great moment because we want to hold up these people who i who embody a certain ideology so I, I make that point not to say that anything that he said wasn't significant, but I wonder, are we really conscious of and aware of the significance in the context of the time and place it was said? Like the liberals of last year patting themselves on the back for passing a law against lynching. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, right. I can't imagine a more pointless moment, but who knows? 40 years from now, 50 years from now, it may be held up as this great monumental moment in history where everything changed. And, you know, those of us who will be really, really, really old and not really giving a shit will be like, yeah, no, that's not how it happened. <laughs> you know? Um, so it... It makes me wonder because we do prop up all these socialists and, you know, because the, the media uh, system, the, the, the systemic media is perpetuating this ideology, this neo-Marxist ideology. So if history teaches us anything, it's that these people that, that are crafting these narratives are cherry picking from the events of the past in order to resubstantiate and to reinforce the, the, the narrative that they have. So like out of Martin Luther King's career, for example, how many speeches do you think he actually gave? It had to have been thousands, right? Over decades uh, of him talking in church and in, in public and it had been hundreds at least, right? I would have guessed dozens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was like, you know, he was a pastor and he was, man, I've, I've seen at least 10 of his speeches and I know he was traveling all over the place talking, 
let's say that it was 20, just on a very low number. I can only really remember like two, two of his speeches. And, you know, the I have a dream one is the most iconic one that everybody continues to parrot today. Like I, I was listening to some some discussions in the house over some new bill that that's trying to pass banning DEI. And on one end, you have somebody quoting one part of Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. And on the other end, you've got another dude being like, yeah, but he also said not to judge a person by the color of their skin, but by their character. And it's like, is that all you dudes remember is that one speech? It makes me think how many other speeches he gave that said drastically different things. Like, for example... They went into one of the speeches that he gave, at least they showed a clip of it, and it very clearly showed how he was like advocating for universal basic income and, you know, abolishing poverty. He had a war on poverty and stuff like that. And and that's like, that's not at all what I remember him standing for. It's interesting. But after they go through all of this, um, you know, Martin Luther King and civil rights movement and stuff, they, they continue forward because that's like that stuff connects really well to some of the, the protests and, and activist groups that we see today. But this also connects in, in events between the civil rights movement and today that I almost completely forgot about. Like, one of the big things that they went into was the Rodney King incident incident, and how eerily similar that was to George Floyd and that whole incident. Rodney King led the police on a high-speed pursuit for quite a while, and he never once complied. Like, you would expect anybody to get roughed up, maybe not to that extreme. Um, but, you know, the fact is that Rodney King, just like George Floyd, was a criminal and that was negatively impacting the black communities basically on a daily basis. Like, he didn't have to die. Rodney King didn't die, but um, George Floyd did. But overnight, he went from, you know, George Floyd, that is, went from uh, a criminal, you know, dangerous, negatively impacting your community type of guy, as far as I can tell, to like a monumental hero who's probably going to be enshrined in a statue somewhere in Portland, Oregon one day. You know what I mean? It's like, that's that's something that, that has continued to happen. And they started going into all of the people that they've used as martyrs recently and connecting it to people that they've martyred in the past. You know, so like some of the, the most recent ones were like uh, Philandro Castile, Castile and Eric Garner and Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor. That was one of the other big ones. They were like, they're all the same as Rodney King. Like these people, if they were like the day before all of that went down, they're not the type of person that anybody would ever want to look up to. But then all of a sudden they get publicized like this and they become this, this martyr, basically, whether or not they died. Um, so it's cool. They went from that into what they called the Tulsa race massacre. And they said that before 2018, what do they say? The race 
riot, that it was a riot until 2018. And then all of these black activists and scholars started referring to, you know, the black Wall Street and all that violence as the race massacre. And they even showed a clip of Joe Biden saying, quote, this was no riot, comma, as he touches his face and says, this was a massacre <laughs> in the whole wise Joe Biden face. It, like, that's one of the things I've been really curious about, what actually happened there and why it happened. And the claims are that there was like 300 people that died and really there's no evidence of that. The, the claim is that they squashed black people's ability to have wealth and to pass on generational wealth. And that's also a lie. You know, that happened in 1921, but by 1925, they had the entire thing rebuilt and fully functional. You know, that's that's four years it took them to rebuild an entire city. That's incredibly resourceful. You know, it's just like this became one of those talking points. They showed this black lady ranting and raving, and she just basically said, we were slaves and you drew us over here in shackles in the bottom of a boat. And then you enslaved us and made us build your cities and build your and produce your goods and stuff. And then you freed us, but you kept your boot on our neck and you kept us down. And then we finally built something for ourselves and you came in and murdered everybody and burned it to the ground. And, you know, we're just now being able to breathe and we deserve reparations. And it's like, that's the course of events that sticks in everybody's mind. Slavery, freeing of the slaves. Jim Crow and segregation, Black Wall Street, Obama, <laughs> Rodney King, Obama. That's that's like the big points that everybody uses to justify this this worldview. But I mean, in reality, like Booker T. Washington through his Tuskegee Institute started the Negro Business League, and they were doing all kinds of awesome stuff, building skillful, productive, valuable. Um, African-American individuals. And one of their protégés by a guy named Philip Payton, um, Booker T. Washington encouraged him and mentored him. And he went to New York and saw an opportunity to buy one of the buildings there and turned it into Harlem, basically. He bought that property and other properties that was a pre predominantly white neighborhood at the time. And they started buying stuff up. And then, you know, they built one building and another building and another building and they they made millionaires they turned these people into millionaires and he started the afro-american realty company they just kept buying properties and getting more and more wealth and you know this all happened between 1900 and 1910 like 125 years ago you had black people that were millionaires that were owning real estate all over uh, Harlem and New York and stuff and down South and in, in Oklahoma. That's really the, the picture that these guys are painting in this movie pre civil rights movement. And so educated African-Americans started to migrate to Harlem and they, you know, they brought everything they needed to make one of the most successful cities ever known for the African-American communities. And then it wasn't until W.E.B. Du Bois showed up in town, um, which he was a communist, and they considered him a, a traitor to African-Americans and the American country. He later renounced his citizenship. 
And, um, you know, him along with like Mary White Ovington, they all started uh, the NWACP and sought to use black Americans as a way to carry out their socialist agenda, basically. What Booker T. Washington and his whole faction was able to create, Du Bois was able to tear down. And that's basically what happened. Do you have a timeline for that? Like the the creation of the NAACP and uh, a time frame for W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, influence? Yeah, so W.E.B. Du Bois... He founded the NAACP, which stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, in 1909, along with a woman named uh, Mary White Ovington, who was another white socialist, starting this organization in 1909 or so. And knowing that W.E.B. Du Bois passed away in 1963 um, in Ghana, actually, I forgot he moved back out of the States. He renounced his citizenship. It seems like up until from 1910 or so up until the 50s or 60s is when all of this stuff was going down, was the deconstruction of what Booker T. Washington had put together and all of his people. However... His institute, Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute, still stands today. There's a lot of kids that take field trips there and stuff still. So it's it's not like W.E.B. Du Bois crushed everything that he did. But you see Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, like, crumble. You see Harlem crumble. You see all of these communities and these these this impact that was built by these groups crushed in result of, of adopting what W.E.B. Du Bois stood for. There's another book called A Century in Images. And it's an amazing book of pictures uh, all, all in Harlem. And it's the same type of thing that I was telling you about the, the other photographer. And basically, over the course of a, a century, you know, they, they were just showing pictures of classrooms, of businesses, of people working together. Um, people were well put together, dignified, like we were talking about. Um, they had hope in their eyes, and you know everything seemed to be well kept and taken care of. It was like a certain respect and stuff that was, that you saw in Harlem, and you literally saw guys like W. E. B. Du Bois entering into some of these photographs and seeing him in some classrooms and stuff. And you start seeing some protests emerge and the same type of thing. You see a slow degradation into anger and violence and entitlement. Like we said, just looking through those photos and towards the end of that book, you actually see Harlem destroyed, broken, and poor. It's Some of the photos in there are absolutely um, powerful. Have you ever seen that book before? I don't think so. Yeah, I think I want to get a copy just to, just to see it for myself. So Du Bois was basically doing the same things back then, they said, as people like Ibram X. Kendi are doing today. 
selling out black people for prestige and delivering power to the people that put them in their positions. So like the, the Mary White Ovington, you know, starting the NAACP with W.E.B. Du Bois and propping him up. And he was the face and the character spokesperson for the entire NAACP. You see the same type of thing with, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, even Max Kendi and anti-racism, intersectionality. You just keep seeing white socialism behind pretty much every one of these groups. Now, some people I fear may may hear that and start thinking, oh, well, yeah, that justifies my my racism. You see, that proves that white people have been behind the degradation of the black community since inception. And it's like, well, no. Like, those people set up those organizations and there was a subversion for sure. Um, but it's not necessarily white people. You know what I mean? Like, it, the way that this was framed, they did a really good job about not really making it about race. They were more like saying, hey, look, there's Marxism behind every one of these organizations. And there are people behind these people pulling the strings. And so I don't want people to hear what I'm saying is like, oh, here's another white socialist. Because I mean as little as I possibly can mean by stating the fact that she was white or any of these other guys were white. In fact, they were from all types of different races and, um, and places on the planet. And you actually see Marxism and socialism globally throughout all the races. It's pretty much, they said that anytime, you know, communists can identify a vulnerability in a community and they can latch on to any movement that's happening anywhere around the world and rein in their agenda and materialize their efforts. Um, they do it. They just find a weak point, drive the wedge in there and reinforce it over and over and over until the social fabric breaks. And lastly, which I'm sorry, Brandon, we don't have time to get into today. They went into LBJ and the war on poverty and the great society and um, how all that took the incentive away from family formation and made people, especially women, dependent on the state and believe that they had a right to be taken care of. And that was, quote unquote, the death blow to the black community. So what you saw in re revisiting the claim that they made in the middle of the movie that Black people were used as a tool to enslave the entire United States population. The claim here is basically that there was an undermining and a pull away from religion and a demoralization with the removal of religion and moving into secularism and uh, corrupting education and then destroying business and drive and entrepreneurialism and all of these things to then ultimately put the nail in the coffin by creating welfare and the great society and all of that. So that's about where the movie ends. And they said they're going to get into all of that stuff in the third movie. So stay tuned, people. There is a third Uncle Tom coming out. But... What do you think, Brandon? What do you think about the uh, the overall impact or point or conversation of the movie? Well, I find it interesting that really it revolves so much around neo-Marxism. Um, 
No, I mean, I'm definitely not surprised. I think in this in this moment, I'm going to give the devil his due. There is disparity. That is that is a fact. There is inequity. That is a fact. We see injustices. That's fact. However, neo-Marxist approach to these issues is destructive. Right? If we were to honestly like really make an honest assessment of let's say inequity, right? Unequal outcomes when it comes to uh, let's say African Americans versus white or Asian Americans. Okay. The, you, you can acknowledge, yes, there's definitely an inequity here, but neo-Marxism makes a, it makes its target a phantom, right? It, it just throws out there this, oh, this is systemic. We can't address this problem. The only way of addressing this problem is to tear everything down. Okay, so that's that's not an effective approach for anything. Now, if we take it, if we make an honest assessment of inequity within a with within a society, well, then we we would look at humanity and human culture and society is is a pretty complex equation. You know, there's there's a lot of moving parts there. But to make an honest assessment of it, you would have to look at the inequities themselves and what may be at the root or the cause and address the root or the cause of the inequity. To just blame it on some phantasm that doesn't exist is is intentionally structured so that it's this is just an attack on our fundamental principles, right? So at, at the, some of the fundamental pr principles of America is like the free market, right? So it, it, you, you say, yes, there's, there's inequity in a market, right? There, there are people with more money and people with less money. We need to destroy the market, right? That's, that's the, that's the neo-Marxist approach. I, we identify an inequity and then we drive a wedge in, right? We, we identify groups that are oppressors and oppressed, and then we we propose the solution that we just need to tear it down because this phantom, the the phantom cause, cannot be addressed. Right? It's it it's in the very roots. So you must uproot and destroy everything. So I don't disagree that there's disparity and there's inequity and there's injustice. Uh, I think anyone who's paid any attention to modern society would say the same. However, I strongly disagree with the prescription that neo-Marxism proposes. It does. It is not an effective way of actually addressing any of these issues. And in the end only exacerbates them. The other interesting factor about this, because so much of it centered around the, uh, not only the, the Marxist elements, but how they manifest within, let's say, the civil rights movement. I find it interesting that today, right, here we are in 2023, and the same mechanisms used by neo-Marxists to first identify a victim. <clears throat> now, if we're talking about, like, with regards to the subject matter of this movie, we're talking about the African-American family and community so that was the victim, right? So you identify a victim 
And then you you want them to be dependent on the state. You want that you want to destroy their history and culture. And you these we now see a an abundance of victim groups. And you just have to ask yourself if we if we take the past as some kind of indicator of where this leads, right? So if neo-Marxism identifying a group as a victim and then coming in to quote unquote save the day, the result being the destruction of culture, family, economic conditions for that victim group. What do we have in the, in the future for the plethora of victim groups that are being identified now, right? We now have a whole new victim culture, right? You have people of color. You have certain religions that are considered victims and other religions not. And you have uh, this gender identity and gender politics identifying a multiple multiple groups of victims. So I see this as if this is formulaic and if we pay attention to the results it's had in the past, where exactly is this new victim story, this this new victim advocacy, where is it heading? Where is it leading? What kind of destruction of economic prosperity of living conditions of families of the culture at large what's in store for a society that can identify a multitude of victim groups and advocate in the same way they did for african americans in the you know leading up to the 60s cuz like you said with we dubois really starting this in the early 20th century where are we going where are we going with an infinite supply of victim groups? That's that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, one thing's for sure, and I would say one of my big takeaways from this entire movie is understanding, number one, the framework that's before us. The ideology, the tactics, you know, the requirements in order for these things to work. And then number two the results. It doesn't take a genius to see some of the facts they laid out in this movie and see the effects of relying on the state for everything versus being responsible and taking your own life and building something with it. And with that, I think it's it's pretty easy to sit down and listen to any person, public personality that's out there today and listen to them talk and be able to hear whether or not they're hammering that wedge in further and, you know, talking to people as if they're victims or purporting that these other people are actually the victims, whatever the case may be. And then noting that the effect of that is more and more people play victim. Or is the effect more and more people are saying, you know what, I'm tired of waiting for them to get it done. I'm tired of reaching out to them with a, you know, for a handout. I'm tired of relying on their time frame or whatever it is and turning around and developing a skill for themselves, developing a business for themselves, developing sustainability for themselves. And so there are two very different paths 
before the United States right now. And I think those are the two. You can either go the route of nanny state, daddy state, government, please come in and, and take care of everybody because we're a mess and we can't do it. Or you turn around and you build something for yourself, build something of value. And luckily, this country still has a foundation in a constitutional republic that allows you either choice. You can go and jump on welfare that's been set up and all that other stuff and perpetuate the systems that these people are talking about, that W.B. Du Bois and everything and LBJ and these guys have really established. But then you can also go the Booker T. Washington route and develop a skill and get out there and work with your community and uplift people and see what you can build around you and around your family and around your community. I think it's very clear the results that are possible with each one of those applications, each one of those methods. Right. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the importance of grounding yourself in morality, um, that in order for this paradigm shift to occur, people need to reorient themselves with morality. Um, I think the overall lack of morality, values, ethics, that we see in the culture is at the root of its decay. So in order for people to take on this other path you're describing of responsibility, I think we need, a, we need to reroute our culture in morality. I think that's a, a, an essential step because we could see that that was the first thing that was targeted, right? That was the first thing that was undermined was morality. And in order to shift the paradigm back to where people do take on responsibility for their own prosperity or thriving or anything else, we need to be grounded in a firm sense of morality and not a relativistic view of morality or truth, but an absolute view of morality and truth. This all deserves a whole nother call to really dig into morality and truth and all of that. So I know that's coming, but um, I think that's incredibly important as well. You can't, you can't get to the results that you want without some type of moral framework with values and ethics and things like that, that were were seemingly, you know, thrown out baby with the bathwater, so to speak, thrown out with religion when people moved into a more mechanistic worldview. Right. All righty, my friend. Uh, that was a good one. That was great. Thank you very much. And, oh, yeah. And uh, talk to you again very soon. Ooh.